With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From Business Insider, this is Success, How I Did It. And I'm your new host, Rich Filoni. In 2004, I was spending a lot of time on MySpace, taking selfies, updating my page, At the same time, our guest today was helping create something that would ultimately destroy it. Chris Hughes had the good fortune of going to Harvard and the even better fortune of being roommates with Mark Zuckerberg. He became a Facebook co-founder, but unlike with his friend, it didn't become his life. I loved working at Facebook, but it wasn't a religion for me in the same way it was for Mark. He went on to spend a few years at Facebook before leaving for something that did feel like a religion, helping elect President Barack Obama. Since then, his small Facebook stake turned into a half billion dollars, but that's something he feels ambivalent about. He grapples with that early wealth in a new book called Fair Shot. It's a mix of personal manifesto and policy proposal. I think my story in many ways illustrates the unfairness at the heart of the American economy today. I grew up in a middle-class household in a little town in North Carolina called Hickory. My mom was a public school teacher, dad was a traveling salesman, and I got financial aid to go to a great boarding school and then later on to Harvard. And then I had the good fortune to room with Mark Zuckerberg. And we started Facebook in 2004, and that story has been written. It exploded in popularity and uh, became one of the largest companies in the world. And as a result, I made a boatload of money for three years worth of work. And uh, as much as people might want to see the American dream in that, I actually think it's indicative of the fact that a small number of people are getting extremely lucky while 99% of everybody else is working hard and is having a harder and harder time to make ends meet. And we have the power to change it. So you're known for Facebook and for your involvement in the Obama campaign. Do you think that this is a chance for you to kind of tell your story the way you see it? Did you feel misunderstood before this? Well, in the years after Facebook's IPO in particular, my husband and I came into this immense wealth. And for a little while, we thought, you know, our case was just totally unique, that I'd experienced a lucky break. And over time, I've come to believe that that's not actually right. My case may be extreme, but it's actually not that uncommon millions of people in that 1% are consistently getting very lucky, not because they're winning lotteries, but because we've structured an economy that creates these windfalls for a select few, and everybody else has a harder and harder time. And so as I became more aware of that, I felt like, you know, why not use my example and my experience to illustrate what's more broadly at work in the economy? 
Yeah, and I found it interesting that you really embraced this idea of like right place, right time. Do you ever wonder what things would have been like if you had ended up in a different dorm in Harvard? I mean, suffice it to say, my life would be very, very different. I'm really proud of the work I did at Facebook. I worked for three years on communications, marketing, product development. But, you know, the economic reward, if you will, that I got for three years worth of work, I think was just totally disproportionate with the time put in. There's no doubt my life would have taken a very different route. And I could very well just be one of the 99% who's working hard and not able to make ends meet. But that is how the economy is working working today. These small decisions, small conversations like the one I talk about in the book where Mark Zuckerberg and I went on a walk a couple months after Facebook had launched and we had an equity conversation. I came out of the gate saying, you know, I want 10% of the company. It was a rainy day, right? It was a rainy night. It was a horrible <laughs> way to have the conversation. He was stressed. I was stressed. It was not the best setup. And I made the case for 10%. He said, I don't think you've earned that much. I caved pretty fast. And in the book, I say, you know, it was at once a spectacular failure of negotiation and also the most successful co- conversation of my life because that yeah. 2% of Facebook ended up being worth uh, nearly half a billion dollars a decade later. But what keeps happening in this economy is these small chance events have these outsized impacts because there's a snowballing effect because of the winner-take-all kind of system so that, you know, what seem like passing conversations in the rain in college can have these outsized effects. And that's that's a new phenomenon. Never before in history have 20-somethings been able to create these companies. I mean, Facebook is now worth $500 billion. And in just over the course of 14 or 15 years, and I think something structurally is at work that's making making that possible. And it's those same forces that are causing uh, income inequality to be at record highs and median wages to be flat. At one point, did you realize the weight of that conversation on the impact on your life? You know, there was never one particular moment afterward. Facebook just kept growing. And and in some sense, the goalpost kept moving. You know, when we had 6,000 people at Harvard on it, we're like, well, this is amazing. We have to open it up to other schools and see if they're interested. And then people from those schools flooded in. And over time, we went from college students to uh, everyone, the general population, later international. And, And there was a moment, I guess a couple years, in 2006, when Yahoo offered us a billion dollars to buy the company. I'm not sure. I guess I would have been 21, 22. <laughs> a billion dollars. Old, yeah, let's at say. 21, um, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it was a billion dollars for the company. And sure, so sure. Um, it was a lot of money at a very young age. And the question at the time was, you know, do we take this or do we not? And Mark and the board made the decision not to. And then all of a sudden, the kind of goalpost, you know, if you'd asked me two years before that, if we were offered a billion dollars from Facebook, clearly that's the definition <laughs> of success. That is, there's no question that that would have been a good decision. But, you know, Mark made the right call and the goalpost moved yet again. So to answer your question more directly, there was never one particular moment where, you know, we realized how enormous Facebook would become. There were just a series of moments when it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it sort of continually reset my expectations and I think our collective expectations. Was there ever a 
time where you could have imagined something as wild as discussions in 2018 about like the company's effect on democracy as a whole in 2004 no Um, (laughs) but later on yes i mean some of the structural problems that facebook is investing in finding solutions for now have been a long time coming i mean the filter bubble uh, a friend eli pariser you know coined the term and wrote the book on that and that was years and years ago so in, in 2004, in the early days, Facebook was, you know, a, a kind of experiment, if you will, a dorm room project that exploded. And then the real hard work was not so much in coming up with that initial idea. It was in scaling the, the network um, over time. And to be clear, again, I was there for three years. When I left Facebook, it had 18 million users. Mm-hmm. Today, there are 2 billion. Two billion. So, um, you know, the, the vast majority of that work has been done since I left. But... Initially, I think there was a sense of experimentation and openness, but I think Facebook's role in the world now, it has been on this trajectory for a while. And and with the growth and with the, you know, the, the intense relationships that people have with the platform, just the amount of time that they use on it, comes a great responsibility. And I think uh, the company is increasingly recognizing that. The next major chapter in your life was joining Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. Yeah. What convinced you to move to Chicago for that? I loved working at Facebook, but it wasn't a religion for me in the same way it was for Mark. And and I think to be able to be in the trenches and have the resilience and the dedication with with any startup, really, you have to believe in the mission of it, almost with a kind of religious zeal. And I enjoyed working on Facebook, but I felt in many ways inspired by Barack Obama's campaign message, but also galvanized to put our country back on track. You know, if you if you remember back 2007, seven, eight years of George W. Bush, massive tax cuts that mostly went to the wealthy, invasion of Afghanistan, Iraq. I mean, it was a It was incomparable to the moment that we live in now, but it felt like a darker time. Uh, And Barack Obama held immense promise and inspired me, just like he inspired a whole generation of Americans and and people on the left and, and, and somewhat on the right. So I decided to move to Chicago to throw my hat in and see if we could use some of the things that I learned at Facebook um, and elsewhere to create a campaign that would be powered from the grassroots up. You know, grassroots campaigns has been something that's been talked about a lot of the time, but particularly at a presidential level, it's really the hub and spoke model that was how they were organized. And Obama had been a community organizer, wanted to experiment to see what might be possible with more of a grassroots kind of approach. And so I came on board pretty early. And over the following couple years, just specifically digitally, we ended up having uh, several million people engage with the campaign, many of whom were on the social network, lots of whom organized events and groups and raised money. And it really became a kind of um, digital community of sorts in a way that truly exceeded my expectations and I think our collective expectations. Yeah. And did you think from day one that he had a real shot at being president. You did. Yeah. And in yeah. retrospect, it's like, what was I thinking? But, <laughs> you know, the crazy became possible. I mean, those, those that, that really was the lesson for me from both of those early career experiences that what seems impossible was actually more possible than, than we thought. Following Obama's win, Fast Company proclaimed you the kid who made <laughs> Obama president. 
What did you think of that when you saw that Man. on the cover? Um, I mean, exaggeration is an understatement. <laughs> it was it was crazy. I mean, you got to sell magazines. <laughs> I understand why um, headlining is often aspirational, let's say. But, um, you know, people would, particularly after the Obama campaign, when Facebook and Obama were both very fresh in people's minds, people would sort of treat me like I had like the Facebook fairy dust to just come in and sprinkle. <laughs> and, you know, I remember speaking to a group of ophthalmologists for <laughs> some reason, and they wanted to know how to use social media. And yeah. they definitely left left the, the speech a little disappointed <laughs> because I didn't have some magic you know, solution to whatever problem they were facing. I have no idea what problems they were facing. So anyway, I think that there was a sense that people were excited about the changes happening in the technological landscape, but also were expecting sort of a cult of genius around me or a lot of other other people, which was more um, uh, a figment of imagination than reality. So then a few years later, when I had a lot of press coverage in the opposite direction, to be honest, that too felt a little a little too far, a little too extreme. And on that note, you buy the New Republic magazine in 2012. Uh, you end up investing $25 million over four years before selling it. And yeah, you made some enemies in the process as you describe in the book. Yeah. Do you regret it? You know, I regret some of the decisions that I made. I mean, I, I, I came in guns blazing. You know, I really, I, I love the journalism that the New Republic had done for decades, nearly a century at that point, and really believe that more people should be reading it. And I took those early lessons from Facebook and the Obama campaign and set really unrealistic goals. Those goals, I, I do regret. I wanted to take the journalism and move it to an audience of, of millions or tens of millions. Um, and in the process, you know, sort of skipped over the fact that the New Republic was a small print magazine with a circulation of 35,000 when when I I bought it. And I think I would have been better served and the institution would have been better served had I adapted more modest means to the enterprise. If I had invested that, that kind of money, but over a longer period, and instead of trying to reach tens of millions all of a sudden with a somewhat niche kind of magazine, trying to uh, reach a smaller and more engaged audience. I'm extremely proud of the, of a lot of the journalism that we that we did. I think um, we made a lot of good progress, but I also think I could have made better decisions. And I carry a lot of those lessons forward into the work that I'm doing now. I mean, that's why I'm. I, I didn't start an organization to campaign for a UBI right off the bat. Yeah, I want to step back for a second. So UBI, Universal Basic Income. Yes. At what point did this become the issue that you wanted to dedicate yourself to? Even before Facebook's IPO, to be honest, I sold the first tranche of stock on the private markets in 2008. Okay. I sold a million dollars worth of stock. And my parents had taught me to tithe. I grew up in a pretty religious household, and they tithed religiously. They Every, <laughs> um, every month, they took 10% of their income and gave it away. And so I, all of a sudden, in 2008, had $100,000 – that I wanted to give away. And it turns out, you know, when you start 
on that road, there are no shortage of causes, but it's it's sometimes hard to figure out what's the most effective thing to invest in. So in uh, over the years, I did a lot of work, talked to a lot of different nonprofit leaders, made a lot of different investments, but uh, uh, really came through Give Directly through this program that works internationally to understand that if you look at the research, cash, providing people with money, no strings attached, has all of these secondary benefits like improving education and health outcomes and leading people to to be less stressed. And so that's how I got on the cash um, uh, wagon, if you will. <laughs> and then I began to learn much more about its power here domestically. And that's how I ended up fighting for, fighting for a guaranteed income. So UBI is a big picture ideal that motivates a, a lot of people, including myself, to think about 2030, 2040 and the future. Today, however, I think a guaranteed income of $500 a month to people who make $50,000 or less, so a more modest starter version, if you will, is what's most required. And that's because I believe that a guaranteed income is the most powerful way to combat income inequality. And in 2016, you co-founded the Economic Security Project, which is the vehicle for your ideas on a guaranteed income. What What is that organization? So the idea of the Economic Security Project is to convene as many smart people as possible to ask big questions about how do we provide financial security to all Americans using cash. So we have a lot of people in our network who come from a background of advocating for UBI, but we also have folks who want to put a price on carbon and distribute the revenue as a dividend. We also invest money in a lot of nonprofits um, and social entrepreneurs and, you know, doing things like the demonstration that we're doing in Stockton, California, where we're providing a guaranteed income um, uh, in conjunction with the mayor to uh, many Stocktonians. So that's the kind of stuff we do. And an interesting thing about this notion of guaranteed income is that it has supporters on the left all the way to libertarians on the right. So yeah. it basically covers a full spectrum. Would you be okay if there were some form of a guaranteed income passed, just not the one that you're advocating in the book? Listen, I have a general openness to, there are lots of different ways to do a guaranteed income. And I think that, I mean, I make the case for one particular one. I, uh, there are others that I'm also interested in and supportive of. The place where I do draw the line is cashing in the existing safety net. So my view is that the social safety net that we have now, food stamps, unemployment insurance, housing vouchers, is um, woefully underfunded. And we live in a time when it's undergoing historic assaults, really, I mean, um, by the Trump administration and congressional Republicans. And I think those are incredibly important to defend against. And if anything, the safety net should be expanded. The guaranteed income I see as working in tandem with those benefits, not replacing them. So that's where I draw a pretty clear line of, you know, an approach that I don't think would be on balance workable. It would be effectively taking money from the people who need it most and redistributing it upwards, which I don't think is stays true to the values of the guaranteed income movement. What does your political future look like? I don't have any future in politics. <laughs> okay. It's just from an advocacy standpoint. Though. Entirely from an advocacy perspective. Yeah. So as you're taking this opportunity to kind of look at your entire career, and you're thinking about how you've been in the spotlights with all your ups and downs. 
what has your career taught you about the notion of success? Hmm. I definitely don't think there's one way of having success. Um, you know, I made a lot of money at a young age, but I didn't feel in connection to the work that I put in. And so success, I feel like, for me, is having the opportunity to work on what I want to work on and hopefully having an impact on the world as part of the process. But even that is a more modest definition, I guess, than others might have. Is this an opportunity to kind of own your story when, as we were saying, like others tried to make you into no, someone else? Know. I feel like I've always sort of owned my story. I don't know yeah. about that. I mean, people are going to say all kinds of sure. things, good things, negative things. And I feel like you got to stay focused on, I have to stay focused on what I care about most. And that's the work that I do on a day-to-day basis. And of course, my family. And uh, and as long as I've, I'm focused on, on the impact that I want to have through work, through my family, then um, I'll be fine. At the time you were writing, you were expecting the birth of your son. So he's has, here. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's here. Two months he's here now. old now. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. And has that change your perspective on your life and what you want to accomplish? I mean, I I think I'm like a lot of new parents feeling extremely fortunate, very lucky, and uh, also a little overwhelmed. Yeah. I mean, um, having, having a son has been an incredible experience. I feel like I'm learning. My learning curve has not been this steep in a very long time. Um, (laughs) But it's really wonderful and, uh, and something I wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't trade for the world. The most fulfilling thing that I've been able to experience so far. How are you thinking of, as you're raising your son, what values do you want to instill? You're starting at a different place from where you started. I think the most important thing is that um, he have a sense of responsibility to, to the people around him. In the book, I dedicate it to my parents specifically for teaching me that no one is invisible. Much of it was through the prism of religion, but not exclusively. And they really taught me to always see, and not just see, but in seeing, care about and think about the roles that other people are playing in the world and what I can do to be of use. And that is so hard-coded into me that um, it just sort of feels like the language that I speak, and I hope that I'm able to pass that along to our son. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Dan Richards. Our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff. I'm Rich Filoni, and I'm really excited to be here. We have a lot of great episodes coming up. Don't forget to subscribe to Success How I Did It on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll be back next week with another episode of Success.